Human rights are women's rights. Change the world. <laughs> Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. Great show today. I have Nancy Birdsall on the line. She is the founding director of the Center for Global Development, which is an international development think tank based in Washington, D.C. And Nancy Birdsall is a real pioneer in the field of international development. We, we have a great conversation about how that field has evolved over time since the 1960s when she first got into it uh, to today. Her career includes a long stint at the World Bank, where she authored some groundbreaking research and reports. Uh, we kick off with a conversation about the Africa Heads of State Summit that's happening in Washington, D.C. So we have a brief conversation about uh, the U.S. relationship with Africa and how President Obama's time in office has changed or, or altered that relationship in any significant or fundamental way. Quick programming note, uh, you can subscribe to Global Dispatches on iTunes, and I heartily suggest you do. We publish one of these long interviews every Monday, and every Thursday I post shorter interviews with think tank types or journalists about something topical and in the news. And of course, you can find every episode on UN Dispatch. Here it is, my conversation with Nancy Birdsall. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Oh, I would say it's a, first of all, it's a reflection of the fact that Africa, many countries in Africa have been growing more rapidly, that there's a lot of interest in the investment community on, in the U.S., in Africa, uh, and the Obama administration is picking up on that. And it's very central to the larger vision that the uh, that President Obama and this administration has articulated about development being central to uh, the foreign policy of the U.S. And, and you're saying that this summit is sort of a manifestation of that of that articulation of of that vision. Right. It's it's a combination of those things that development matters from the point of view of this administration. Um, that Africa is uh, a place that is less known to many people in the U.S., and this is an opportunity for the president to sort of speak indirectly to the point that it's an important part of the world from a market point of view as well as a development point of view, uh, that it's not just a place where there's wars and conflict, that it's a place that has enjoyed some of the rapid, many countries, some of the most rapid growth. Uh, in the world in the last decade. I mean, do you expect them to, to, to that end, do you, do you expect them to showcase some positive examples of countries that have experienced tremendous growth? And what, what might that look like? Like, what are some uh, of those examples? I don't actually know very much about what's on the agenda. I think it's a very interesting opportunity to showcase some specific initiatives of the administration. Uh, one of them is Power Africa, 
which we've got talked a lot about and see as a as an important initiative on the part we at the Center for Global Development, my colleague Todd Moss and others. Um, it's it's and what's important about Power Africa from the point of view of Raj Shah, who's the head of USAID, is that it brings together private sector with improved public policy. It creates in the idea is to create a setting in which there's incentives for reforms on the part of governments that participate, um, and that that works in terms of attracting more investment, domestic and foreign. And and what do you sort of surmise uh, African leaders are are sort of want to get out of this um, this this summit? You know, I, I remember I was in Ethiopia just a few weeks after the 2008 elections. And I had the opportunity to interview Jean Ping, who at the time was head of the African Union. And he made this sort of remarkable statement that I'll, that I'll never forget. He said, you know, something along the lines of the African Union has five regions. The sixth region is the diaspora. And we consider President Obama the president of the diaspora. And that sort of seemed to reflect this tremendously you know, high hopes that sort of, you know, someone that a lot of Africans embraced as sort of one of their own, uh, not in a literal sense, but uh, as one of their own, um, you know, would, would sort of bring this kind of new relationship between the U.S. And, and Africa. And I'm wondering if, you know, you think that, you know, the Obama administration represents a sea change in U.S.-Africa relations, if at all. No, I don't think so. I think what the African heads of state probably want to get out of the summit is the message that they're ready and willing for to get on with more trade and investment. Um, many of them and their predecessors have been saying for some years now that they want trade, not aid. And that's kind of shorthand for we don't want to be seen, as we were for many years, as the basket case of international development. We want to be seen as a place where there are tremendous opportunities for our people and for the for the rest of the world to enjoy the fruits of market-led growth. Uh, that, that's to me, that's my my intuition about what what the message will be. Uh, great. Well, you want to uh, sort of pivot now to uh, just talk a little bit about you. Um, and you know, I, I think listeners will be interested in getting a sense of where you come from. I think a lot of listeners will be familiar with the Center for Global Development and might be uh, familiar with with your work, um, but maybe not necessarily where you came from and what your influences were. Uh, so, uh-huh. where where do you grow up? Where are you from? I grew up in a suburb of New York City, uh, Montclair, New Jersey, in a, you know, a prosperous 1950s setting. <laughs> um, so in that sense, I would say I was one of the lucky people in the world in terms of where I was born and when I was born as well. And uh, I guess when did you sort of first become aware of you know, of, of inequality in the world. Cause I, I mean, I presume, I, I don't know you at all personally, but I sort of presume that someone who gets into working on development issues is, is in some way motivated by addressing issues pertaining to inequality. And I, you could tell me I'm wrong and that would be fine. Right. Well, um, there's two levels of inequality that I could speak to. One is on global inequality. I still remember when I was in the eighth grade doing a report on Africa uh, it, which is sort of interesting given that we were just talking about the Africa Summit because uh, 
the report was called Africa, the darkest continent. <laughs> so the, to sort of people may want to do the calculation on my age, but I was in the eighth grade in 1958. So that was before independence, the independence movement really hit throughout Africa, except for Ghana in 1957. I think um, in sub-Saharan Africa, Ghana might have been the only country that was independent prior to 1958. So, you know, you could say already then I, I kind of became aware through that eighth grade project that there were other parts of the world where people um, didn't enjoy the benefits of those growing up in suburban New York City. Uh, but the inequality within countries is, is in a way something that I, I think is equally important and has risen on the agenda in part because of the, the now very well-known book of Thomas Piketty. And that sort of dawned on me as an issue I wanted to work on myself uh, when I made a transition from working, doing a major report at the World Bank in the early 90s on uh, growth in East Asia, which was uh, called uh, the, it was sort of trying to understand whether and why the tigers in East Asia had been so successful in the prior two decades. And then soon after that, I moved to become the executive vice president at the Inter-American Development Bank. And I had been working on Latin America as well at the World Bank. And, you know, when you work on Latin America and you have worked on East Asia, the difference is so stark on that dimension of within-country inequality that you can't help starting to think, wow, you know, is it possible that East Asia was so successful because beginning in about 1960 or even earlier in the 50s, um, it benefited from a set of shocks that brought equality of assets, of land, access to education, and so on. And what were some of those shocks? Uh, post-war, you know, the U.S. pretty much imposed a land reform uh, approach in Korea, and that was that happened in Taiwan as well. Certainly in Hong Kong and Singapore, the other two tigers, there was a sense that, you know, we better deliver for the people because we have these communists in China all around us, and they're whole message is that they're delivering for the people and that they're the people's Republic of China, right? So in Hong Kong and Singapore, there was a lot of emphasis on ensuring people got housing and services, whether they were the poorest of the poor or not. Uh, and then for the other things went on as well. I mean, the way the labor markets were set up um, just made it more likely that more people could climb the ladder of uh, increasingly good jobs in terms of their productivity because of technological change and so on. So, you know, then you land in Latin America and the history is, of course, very different. And it starts with high concentration of wealth in the colonial era and high dependence on commodities and so on. All of the things that we now understand better as a profession in economics um, make it much more likely that you're going to have a set of a vicious circle of inequality and lower growth. Um, that's that's to- that's that's totally fascinating. I wanted to um, 
just bring it back to, to eighth grade for, for a second. So, <laughs> yeah, sure. um, fast forward it. Uh, um, so, uh, you know, you, you say you, you write this report. Uh, presumably you kept engaged on these issues in high school. Um, where did you go to college? I went to uh, Newton College of the Sacred Heart, the small Catholic women's college, which merged into Boston College many years ago. Mm-hmm. So, you know, on the one hand, I grew up in the sophisticated suburbs of New York City. And, in fact, it was a fairly sophisticated education in many ways. But it's also true that I went to uh, women's uh, all-girls high school and an all-women's college. And I think that's part of my background that has made a difference somehow in my approach to the world as well. Well, how do you think, how do you think that's made a difference? Well, I think, you know, as as people now are more wont to say that it's easier to develop uh, confidence, um, especially, you know, in those junior high and, well, actually in high school, maybe even in college, um, if you're a girl without boys around. I think the other thing is, though, and I've thought about this a little, although I've never thought about it very deeply, you know, the Catholic nuns are the most female. They are, they form their own communities. Their leaders are themselves. You know, it's quite interesting. They're very independent and autonomous. Um, the women are in charge, so they kind of tolerate the parish priest for any listeners who <laughs> grew up as Catholics. But basically, they run their own lives. So there's an interesting indirect psychological effect, perhaps, of spending many years being educated by women uh, who run their own lives. And this was probably about the era that liberation theology became, I guess, more prominent in, in the Catholic church. Am I? uh... Uh, Yes. In the sixties, definitely. um, Right. So in the sixties and late sixties, including of course, in Latin America, and then, you know, like the uh, Mormons, the Catholics have this sometimes unfortunate, you know, tendency to want to go out and make get everybody else to be Catholics. But the good side of it is the, the missionary instinct that it's worthy to have a mission in life. And part of that mission is bringing something to other people. And by the time you were at uh, Boston College, did the liberation theology sort of trickle its way to, uh, to say, like Sacred Heart, which I presume is a Jesuit university? Well, it wasn't Boston College. Or pardon me, Sacred Heart. <laughs> it was the Newton College of the Sacred Heart, pardon run me. by a group of nuns, the sacred, the madams of the Sacred Heart, uh, who were kind of came from the era of the French royalty before the Revolution in France. So, um, but you know, uh, it was there. I think much more influential, frankly, in the sixties was the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War. And then around the late 60s, the women's liberation movement. I I mean, of course, that's in the background, liberation theology. But it wasn't as though we were every day immersed in Catholic issues at all. And obviously in the 60s, these other forces and these other movements 
were absolutely, you know, there. That was what it was about. That all the way through the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, you know. It was the 60s when I was in high school and college. Uh, and so I guess with all this, you know, uh, all these changes swirling around and all the cliched ways and, and sort of the montages you see at the 50th anniversary of anything that happened in the 60s. Uh, right. <laughs> which which is, is an onslaught for non-baby boomers like myself, but tolerable. Um, I guess how is it that you uh, came to, des- to you know, decide to devote yourself to economics, which I, I presume, and I could be wrong, that in, uh, you know, in college you, you, know, you decided that this was your thing? Well, actually, in college, I majored in American studies <laughs> to make life complicated for you, no, partly good. because I I started majoring in English, and then I didn't want to take old English, you know, kind of dull stories like that, so I added some things about American history. So I think that was an early indication of how I'm a bit of a dilettante. But then um, what happened is that I went to the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University um, because I was interested in international studies, even though I had majored in American studies. Maybe there's a connection there uh, in an interesting way. And then several years later, I was working. I, I, I st- my region of study was Africa at SAIS and doing that master's degree. And several years later, I was working for an organization that had a USAID contract to uh, support scholars in the developing world. And I was kind of the person responsible for the process uh, in Africa. Mm-hmm. And because what... I, had spe- I knew Africa and I had specialized in Africa as a as a master's student. What, what spoke, uh, was your master's thesis on in Africa? I'm just sort of curious to see what was sort of percolating, I, I presume it, it was probably early it, 1970s. It was about the leader in Kenya. Oh, God, I'm going to f- forget his name. Moy? Was it Moy at that point? No, 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 no. Much earlier, he, he, was, he arose during the independence movement because he was the leader of a labor market, mm-hmm. you know, a union. It starts with an M, Mwang, or something like that. It's terrible. Um, that I don't remember, but... Many people who know Kenya and know about the independence movement will know exactly whom I'm talking about. In any event, what happened is that the other there were three colleagues uh, who had the same job that I had, working on Latin America, Asia, and maybe the Middle East. And um, one of them was very influential. Uh, he was an economist, uh, still a good friend, um, Bill McGreevy. And so that was one thing that, you know, I saw and listened to him, and and he kind of influenced me to see that economics had sort of a good way to frame issues and problems. And equally important was that we were receiving these proposals from people all over the world to do research in the social sciences. And it became very clear to me anyway that the ones that were the most interesting in terms of testing hypotheses and not going in circles and describing the world but actually trying to understand the world were often from economists. So I became more and more interested in economics, and then I decided by that time I was 26 or 27 years old to go back and do a Ph.D. in economics. With 
and, and I, I guess you probably had the idea of applying, um, you know, your economics training to, to international development issues. Um, yes, well, then I wanted to apply it to development, absolutely, and to labor market issues. What I mean, the, the it seems as if it's it's only kind of been in relatively recent years that sort of the field of development economics has kind of exploded. Um, what I guess, what did the field look like back then? Oh, what a good question. Um, well, you know, I would have—I'd say my PhD was in labor market economics. Interesting, right? With a focus on developing countries. So, I think even today, you don't really have people within economics, it's not a discipline within economics. You know, people who work on development or political scientists or within economics, they might be focused on labor or or family population, which I also did, really. My So I think that's a really good question because only in the last 10 years, now in public policy schools, there's a lot more focus on development within the different social sciences, especially political science and economics, right? And there are concentrations on development, mm -hmm. but I don't think it's, it's a field <laughs> in the same way that sociology is a field or economics is a field. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, you know, Back then, there weren't organizations like the Center for Global Development or, or MIT's Global Poverty Lab that, you know, rigorously applied academic standards to the study of developing economies. I see. Exactly. That's right. Well, there was the World Bank, though. Mm -hmm. And so when I was at SAIS, I was a research assistant on on a, um, uh, the Brandt Commission, which was housed at the World Bank and the head of it was Ernie Stern, who subsequently became the deputy to Robert McNamara at the World Bank. So I think my interest in development, I mean, I think the honest thing to say is that my life was not planned. You know, it's kind of one combination of interests and coincidences and, and opportunities after another in the best sense of the word. And maybe that's indirect career advice for people who might be listening. I think, you know, you have to kind of follow your nose and um, be ready when opportunity strikes. And my nose somehow got me into development in a way that I think has been great good luck for me. And so you were you were studying in Yale, uh, and you you uh, you just said that you wrote your thesis on on you know, labor issues. Uh, and so how uh, how did luck strike you sort of after uh, Yale? What was your next step? Well, uh, that's a good one. I uh, I I pretty much decided I wanted to go to the World Bank after I did the PhD for two important reasons. One is that I was already in my 30s, and I'd been working for many years before I did the Ph.D., and 
so although it was kind of there were the usual sort of pressures to go on to the job market for a faculty position at a great university, um, the opportunity cost of, of going and being an assistant professor was quite high. Um, the second, so although I did go on the job market and was and once again very lucky, met some people on the faculty of some great universities with whom I subsequently worked because I had the luck to meet them when giving seminars. The second reason to go to the World Bank is that it's in Washington, and my uh, hus my ex-husband was in Washington, and we have we had a child, so I wanted to be where he was. And uh, what was your uh, posting at the World Bank? So I went into the research department, what was then basically the research department, because I wanted to keep doing research, and, you know, partly because I had this young child and didn't want to be thrown right away into uh, the travel that's associated with other more of the operational positions in the World Bank. Mm -hmm. uh, and what, so what sort of things were you researching? What was uh, So I was, was in the... No, I presume first, this is probably like the mid-1970s, late 1970s? 1979. Great. So I'm in, I went into the population, uh, what was it called? Population Health and Nutrition, or Population and Division in this research department my my thesis, my PhD thesis, had been on the determinants of fertility and the link to education. So um, it was great. You know, I went into a wonderful division in a wonderful department at the World Bank. It was fantastic. So it gave me the opportunity to do that research. And then I had more good luck because... Uh, the, there had been a decision made that in 1984 the World Bank should do its new, relatively new annual World Development Report, which is, you know, came before the Human Development Report, but it was this, a similar idea. Every year there would be such a report. Uh, the decision had been made that it should be on population in 1984 because uh, there was a big United Nations population conference scheduled in that year that happened in Mexico City, mm -hmm. 10 years after the Bucharest uh, population conference. And so that decision had been made, and then a new chief economist came named Ann Krieger, who's a distinguished economist, now actually teaching at SICE. She became the chief economist, and she asked me if I would do head the World Development Report. And she knew me because she called up her colleague from the University of Minnesota, Paul Schultz, who was my thesis advisor at Yale. So, you know, more, more stories, more and, luck, more readiness for an opportunity. <laughs> and I'm, I'm fascinated by this. Uh, report because, I mean, these sort of fertility, these issues surrounding fertility are obviously like very, um, right now, very mainstream. Uh, right. Like it's, it's sort of almost goes without saying, I know there's been research by like Carol Bloom and, and others, you know, saying, you know, basically like lower fertility rates generally equal, you know, higher, uh, you know, economic indicators and, and, you know, are, are sort of better for everyone. Uh, at the time though, I'm wondering, was that sort of controversial? 
Oh, yes. Very. It was becoming more and more controversial in every respect. So it was quite uh, a wonderful experience. I mean, there was quite uh, – Robert McNamara was then the president of the World Bank, and he had given a speech on population, and there was a lot of concern. Uh, the USAID had it was putting a lot of money into family planning. There was this lot of concern about the so-called population bomb. Our report was very careful on that, and I'm very proud of that. I mean, made the point the problem is not too many people. Uh, from For developing countries, the problem can be adjusting to a very rapid rate of growth of the number of people, not, the, not sort of the density issue or too many people in general, but the rate of growth. And more important in that report, we – I push very hard that the discussion of family planning be called family planning as a service. And I'm very glad of that in retrospect because the big controversy subsequently arose around the sense that some countries, uh, particularly India, you know, pushed family planning and abused women's and people's rights in doing so. And very much in our report in 1984, the view was that family planning should be thought of as a health service. And so anyway, that's um, – I moved on from doing work on population to other things. You remember I said I'm a bit of a dilettante within economics. But looking back, I think uh, it was uh, – it stands the test of time, that report. And not everybody says so. Not everybody thinks so. You can find critiques of it because it is and was controversial. I think the world has come around more and more, though, to the point that Margaret Sanger made long before, which is people should have access, and women in particular, it should be considered something that's just normal to have uh, that the choices that are involved when you have access to modern contraception. I guess what's like sort of depressing is that, you know, you wrote this report in the early 1970s and, you know, here we are, uh, you know, pardon me, in the early 1980s, here we are, you know, 30 years later. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the data from like the UN Population Fund is still so striking, something like 200 million women around the world don't have access to modern contraception or, or family planning services. And, you know, of the, all the MDGs, the ones that are pertaining to, uh, you know, women's health are particularly reproductive health, are, are sort of the farthest behind. Uh, I guess the, so the reasons for that are probably complicated, but was there sort of like a missed opportunity at some point in the 1980s to accelerate progress? Like why, like why aren't we there yet? Oh, I don't know. I would look at it a little bit more glass half full. Okay, uh, There's been huge increases in access to family planning and maternal and child health services in the last 30 years, just I think it's one of the most successful programs from the point of view of implementing sensible policies is family planning and related maternal and child health care. And there have been women have responded. They voted with their feet, you could say. Um, there's been the declines in fertility everywhere, really, and even now beginning in Africa, which has been the exception, are are amazing. I mean, I think we've learned a lot from that. The old saw that, you know, you have to have already be developed before there are incentives for people to want fewer children 
has been completely, you know, down down the toilet, you could say, because women in the poorest countries in the world, once they got the idea that they could control their lives a little bit uh, and that they could have fewer children and spend more time with their children or try to give their children a better life, they went ahead and did it. I mean, the total fertility rate in places like Bangladesh and India and certainly in Latin America is barely over two children per woman. So, wow, that's the way to look at it. I think it's still, there's still so much to do. It's true that it's not, those services and decent health services are not available to everyone. More needs to be done. And the the Millennium Development Goal of um, maternal mortality is the one that has become the, is the biggest challenge. But I think the will is there, the money has been there, there's been really a fantastic movement, I would say, particularly in the last 20 years. And now we have uh, Melinda Gates, especially at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, interested. And, you know, I think the whole movement around women and their rights has moved uh, not to exclude, but has moved on to really tough issues about we just had a girl's summit here, the sort of U.S. launch of a something that was going on in the U.K. with sponsorship of the U.K. government, and the discussions were about female genital mutilation and early and forced childhood marriage. And it's amazing to me the amount of work going on on the in those areas. Um, so, for how long were you at the World Bank? Fourteen years. Ah, a long time. And and uh, what was your next step? What what compelled you or inspired you to leave? Well, uh, at some point, I, I stayed in research and policy work for a good long time, and then at some point, I uh, there was a reorganization of the World Bank that happens quite often, and I decided to that I ought to try some, you know, going into operations, and I wanted to work on Latin America. Again, now family and children um, led me to a compromise that worked out very well in the end. I wanted to work on Latin America just because it's easier travel, no jet lag. And at that time, it was still true if you worked on Africa or Asia, you were expected to go for two two or even three weeks on missions. And I didn't want to do that. So I went to work on Latin America, um, worked on Brazil, met Larry Summers when he came to be um, (laughs) the chief economist at the World Bank. Uh, And eventually... Um, I then Larry Summers became the undersecretary uh, for international affairs at the U.S. Treasury when the Clinton administration came in, and he suggested that I go and be the executive vice president at the Inter-American Development Bank. Mm. So that's another story about how, you know, opportunity and luck and so on. Well, it's good to know Larry Summers for, for sure. It's good to know Larry Summers. It's good to have children. So you go to work on Latin America and you learn Spanish and Portuguese, and then you're a credible candidate to go to a high position at the Inter-American Development Bank. Was, I mean, at that time was, uh, you know, Africa considered more of a backwater and Latin America considered more of like a, you know, premier posting if you're interested in, in development issues? No, I wouldn't say that. I think that um, my move to the IDB was 
that I was taking advantage of an opportunity. It's the second highest position there. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, it was this, a chance to be in a leadership position at a multilateral development bank that was great. So this you was, uh, I suppose, the uh, you know mid nineteen nineties or early to mid nineteen nineties. Um, yeah, early nineties. So you know, Clinton becomes the president. Yeah. Um, he's elected in ninety two, right? Ninety two. Yes. Yeah. So um, it's early ninety three. So I'm trying to uh, on the fly think of the big economic issues in Latin America. I, there, there was that the the big bailout, right? Of of well, yeah. Peso. The, the, the tequila crisis. Yes. yes uh, so, what year was that? And were you at the IDB when that occurred? Uh, I was indeed. There was there was NAFTA that was approved in uh, I think I've got this right. Oh goodness, ninety two, ninety three, and yeah. then the tequila crisis is in, in December of. I want to say 93, but it might have so been 94. Maybe, maybe this will be uh, interesting. Could you just sort of describe the tequila crisis and your involvement with, with the, you know, what happened and, and the solution? Well, I'm very glad to have the opportunity because I took a semester and taught at Williams College a couple of years ago. And I was talking about the tequila crisis, and I realized the students, you know, were barely born <laughs> at the time of the tequila crisis. So the tequila crisis was uh, what happened is that Mexico basically uh, had an overvalued currency and some financial difficulties and um, was pushed into uh, – it ran out of money to pay, to cover its – to roll over its debts and – as happens in many crises in emerging markets, less so now, but for many years. Once the creditors who've been lending money see that there are deep problems um, and they come to worry that that, that a country won't be able to pay them back, then they they have their own mini panic and they don't want to lend money. So, you know, when a country is dependent on short-term borrowing that has to be renewed and rolled over, if some of its fundamentals in terms of its income from exports or its income from because of foreign investors coming in isn't healthy, isn't sufficient to cover its debts, just like when you're paying your mortgage, right, on your house. Mm-hmm. If the mortgagee, mortgager, more, right, sees that you, some householder, don't have a job and you're not paying and not able to pay, then they want to get out. So it's a little worse than a mortgage because mortgages used to be long-term, and so it would be more complicated. But in this case, Mexico was in trouble. So, so did you sort of see this coming from your perch at the IDB? Yes, there was a lot of concern um, that Mexico was having difficulties because, and you, you know, we don't want to go into all the do an economics lesson here, but because of its exchange rate, that it was with an overvalued exchange rate, it was having difficulty competing in export markets. Mm-hmm. So. And so uh, that can't go on forever. And so um, how how was it sort of decided that, you know, the solution would be the U.S. government sort of bailing out Mexico? 
Well, there was leadership in the U.S. Treasury, including from uh, Larry Summers and was it Lloyd? Um, Benson, is that it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, clearly Larry Summers was uh, absolutely central in that process because he was the undersecretary for international affairs and he knew the economics, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so he he was, along with some of his staff, very important at the in working out with the IMF as well as from the U.S. itself some support, but from the IMF and the World Bank and the Inter-American Development Bank. And so it's just what was the the final uh, decision? Like, well, like what what did the U.S. do and what did the IDB do? They just 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 assume the debts, right? No, no, no. They basically loaned Mexico, covered Mexico, which ah. calmed the markets initially. Okay. And then supported Mexico in the subsequent subsequent six months, or even more. By in the case of the, both the World Bank and the IDB, did very big loans, kind of policy loans associated with some some changes in the approach in Mexico on the macro side. Um, and those loans, by the way, uh, were very important in that they also had major sort of arrangements on social safety net, on creating and strengthening social safety nets, the social safety net in Mexico. And that turned out subsequently to be very important because Mexico became a leader on something that we now call conditional cash transfers. And that was picked up later by Brazil and now by the larger community in many developing countries and in the development field that there are benefits to this. But that's another story. Yeah. So, <laughs> Well, we only have a few minutes left. I do want to make sure that we get to the story of the founding of the Center for Global Development. So uh, yeah, yeah. how is it uh, – you were at the IDB for a while, and then how is it that you decided or that you came to found uh, the organization that you currently lead? Right. Well, some some more good luck, I'd say, in, in, in an interesting way. So first I decided after a little over five years – that I that I really should leave the IDB because for the priest the, the five years or more there six years there and a couple of years at the World Bank preceding going to the IDB I'd been really traveling a lot working a lot and my second daughter by now is entering her junior year in high school and I knew from my first daughter by then having gone to college that when they go at least in this country they're really gone you know. It was a big change to have one of your children go off to college. So I thought, I just want to be home, or I just want to have a more regular life and not be traveling so much. So it took me a while, but I, um, with some regret, left the IDB and went to the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, which is a think tank in Washington. Right. We've had Jessica Tuckman-Matthews on on this program. Exactly. It was Jessica who brought me to Carnegie, bless her heart. And then after a couple of years um, came along the person whose name is Ed Scott, who became the chair of the CGD board. And he he had been talking to people like Tim Geithner and Gene Sperling um, about – and that's another whole story, how interesting he is. And he just felt that it was time to have a think tank – on development that would have impact and influence. And he talked to people like Fred Berkston as well, who's now, who, ne- who just recently retired from head of the Peterson Institute for International Economics. 
And several people mentioned him to me. He was looking for someone who might take the initiative to run this sort of place. So uh, by that time, I had... I was ready. You know, I'd been in a think tank and gotten a feel for how think tanks work and what they're good at, what they may, might not be good at. I really missed, honestly, when I was at Carnegie, the mission, the sense of mission you have. I didn't really even understand that I had a sense of mission. All those years working in the development banks where the mission is reducing poverty and inequality and making the world a better place for really poor people in developing countries. Um, I was still working on those issues at Carnegie, but it's not the same sense of mission. So um, I uh, got this chance. Ed Scott was prepared to make a serious commitment to, you know, finance a startup, and that's how the Center for Global Development got started. Nice. And, and uh, anything we should look out for the, in the future uh, from Center for Global Development? Well, I think the most important thing is how all those years in working in the development banks influenced the mission of the Center for Global Development, which was basically that I said, you know, we know now, now we're in 2001, that it's people and leaders in their own countries that shape the future of those countries. It's, there's relatively little you can do from outside without, you know, it, it mostly comes from the countries themselves. And on the other, so, but we do matter, those of us who are outside. We are in a global system. There are a lot of things that aren't quite right about the way this global system works, that are uh, inefficient in terms of providing opportunities for people in the developing world, and many times deeply unfair. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. is a huge player because it's the superpower. And so I want to work on making the U.S. and the Japanese and the Europeans and the advanced economies governments and the institutions like the World Bank and the IMF and so on more development friendly. There isn't an independent voice on what those countries do. We've got lots of measures of what developing countries do um, and their governments, but we don't have enough scrutiny and understanding of how the rich countries can do better. Uh, well, from an eighth-grade project to the founding of the Center for Global Development to the future of the Center for Global Development, uh, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Thank you. It was great fun. I said all kinds of things I never would have expected to talk about. Perfect. Then my job as an interviewer is done. Well, that was a lot of fun. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you next week. Remember to subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss an episode. And just one quick plug, this intro and outro music you hear is a track called Something Different off an album called Unfinished Spaces by the composer Giancarlo Volcano. So look it up and buy yourself a copy. It's fantastic music, and he's given it to us for free. Thank you, Giancarlo.